And as we've been doing, we'll read first from Luke and then from Matthew. We'll read <coughs> starting in Luke 11, verses 1 to 4. And then we'll hop over to Matthew 6, verses 9, to the first part of verse 13. Before we read those, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is wonderful. It is most glorious because it tells us of you, and you are most glorious. So we pray that you would display your wonder, your holiness before us, that we might be a holy people, made holy by the blood of Christ, kept holy by the work of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 11, verses 1 to 4. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And then from Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. Life in a, in a sinful world is a dangerous endeavor. Of course, it's dangerous in a number of ways. It's dangerous in a physical way to our beings. There's small things like bumps and bruises, things that are a little bit more dangerous than that, things like pool decks. And then from there, you have really the, the big dangerous things which we deal with, which are so pressing and weighty on our souls, things like cancers or cardiac arrests and those types of things. But in view here is a different kind of, of danger, the kind of danger that Jesus prays that we should keep ourselves from, that we should pray to be kept from, is the danger which is to our hearts, to our souls. It's the danger of sin. You might think of, of life as being sort of like a young child wandering through the, wandering through the rainforest. There are dangers everywhere you go. There's poisonous snakes and crocodiles and tigers and, and man-eating fish. And everywhere you go, there's a danger. And, and the, chance of, the chance of that child wandering through the rainforest and surviving even one day is fairly small. And the chance of a child surviving an entire week in the rainforest by himself is impossible. And so it is with people living in a sinful world. We, we have set by ourselves, no chance of making it through life without having been destroyed in our spirit. We carry the jungle metaphor just a little bit further. And we're like those children. We're like that child who wanders through the rainforest with the crocodiles and the piranhas and the snakes. But we're like a child who has a fascination with crocodiles and snakes. We go looking for trouble sometimes. And the child who goes looking for trouble is most certainly going to be destroyed. And so we go looking for trouble. And so to kind of cut to the chase, so to speak, 
In a very simple way, if we're going to speak about our, our odds of getting through life without being destroyed by our own sin on ourselves, you might say that we're, just very simply, we're toast. And so Jesus teaches us to pray. He teaches us to pray that we can be, that we will be defended, even from ourselves, defended from the temptation to sin. We, we looked last week, we looked last week at asking for the forgiveness of sins we have already committed. And now as we turn into this petition, this last petition, which I've divided into two parts, Lord willing, we'll look at the last part next week. But today we pray for protection from sin. We want to be forgiven of past sins. We want to be protected from sins in the moment. And so we desire to be preserved. So we ask God that he would not lead us into temptation. Now some of you might have kind of your, your theological radars up and you say, well, why on earth would God lead us into temptation? Would God really tempt me to sin? The answer to that is no. Very plainly the scriptures teach that God does not tempt anyone and he himself cannot be tempted. James says that in James 1 verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So why do, we, why do we pray this? If God doesn't tempt us, why do we pray that God would not lead us into temptation? And the answer is that this, this word temptation really has more a sense of testing. That we don't desire, we don't desire to be brought into a place where we'll be put to the test. We know ourselves. We know that when we face trials, we know that when we face temptations, that we are prone to fall. And so we essentially pray, we might say, that, Lord, lead us not into the place of temptation. Lead me not into situations where I will be tempted. And with that prayer, there is, a, there is a, an intrinsic and essential humility that is in this prayer. That inside out and upside down, every part of this request, lead me not into temptation, is an admission of humility. We admit that we need this. We admit that when we come into places of temptation, we are prone to fall. And so we acknowledge our own weaknesses. And we say, Lord, please, I know that I am prone to fall. Know that I am given to failure. So don't put me in situations where I will fall. But let me keep my holiness intact. My integrity intact. And don't lead me into places where I have a great chance of falling. You know, there's, there's, a, certain, there's a certain conflict that we've seen a number of times in the Lord's Prayer. And the conflict is between our regenerate, our born-again are born again parts of us, and then the old nature, the sinful nature of the flesh. That's what we see here. We, we see a, a desire in whoever Jesus is teaching to pray. There is a desire not to fall into sin. But there is also an admission that there is a willingness to sin in us as well. And, and Paul articulates this very well in Romans chapter 7. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. 
wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You know, you go back and you think, I am as a reborn person, as as a person who has been converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, I, I am captivated by Christ. And yet, even still, there is within a part that is extremely drawn to sin. And so we pray that we will not be led into places where the sin will prevail. Have you ever prayed this? Lord, make me want to want to do what is right. Because sometimes we want to do what is right, but sometimes we want to do what is wrong. And so it is good for us to pray, Lord, make me want to want to do what is right. Change my heart, and then lead me not into places where I will desire to do what is wrong. You see, that's where, that, that's where temptation comes from. Temptation comes from our hearts. When the external test meets an internal desire to do what is wrong, that's where sin is birthed. And that's what we see with the very first sin. When the serpent comes into the garden and he engages with Eve, he gives kind of his, his best satanic sales pitch. And then what we see is that there is an internal desire in Eve that works itself out in sin. And we read these devastating words from Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Do you see how it was the desires of the heart that met with the external temptation that gave birth to the sin? And so our sin always starts in our heart, and it is the heart's desire for what God has forbidden us to have and His mercy forbidding us to have it. It is desire that interacts with the external temptation that gives birth to the sin. And so it is with us. Our hearts long, unfortunately long, for what is wrong. James says this again as we move into James 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted <coughs> when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So the prayer that Jesus, us, that Jesus teaches us to pray is not, God, don't you tempt me, but it is don't let me be tempted at all. Don't let me be subjected to more than I need. But we, we are tested. And a certain amount of testing is a good thing. God does put us in situations of testing from time to time. And, and any, when he puts us in these situations, he does so for better or worse that we can see our own hearts. And you see this in the example of Abraham. God tested Abraham greatly. God promised Abraham that he would have, uh, that he would have a son. And then he waited decades keep his promise. All the while, Abraham had to wait in faith for God to keep his promise. And then if that wasn't enough, then the Lord commands Abraham to go up the mountain and to sacrifice this long, decades-awaited son of the promise, to sacrifice him as an offering. And Abraham, in one of the, one of the most stunning displays of faith the world has ever seen, is willing to sacrifice his son, although God in his mercy stops him from doing so. 
And in that moment, we see that Abraham is tested and he succeeds. The author of Hebrews used that same word, testing, as he comments on Abraham in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham was tested and he passed. David, in a number of instances, was tested and he failed. One of those instances comes in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 14. And there, the, the, the devil, no, not face to face like with Eve or like with Jesus, but the, the devil comes and tempts David into pride. And he tempts David and he incites David to go throughout his entire kingdom and number all the people in his kingdom. And he numbers them not like we have a census. We have censuses every 10 years, and it's so you know which states have how many people, how many electoral votes they should have, etc., etc. But that's not why David numbers his people. David numbers his people so he can know how great he is. Look how great my kingdom is. I took over this little nation, and now I am the ruler over this incredible amount of people. And David succumbs to the temptation that he was brought into, and he fails. Abraham passed. David fails. Temptation can be hard. Just think of all these, just these examples. Eat the fruit, and you will be like God. There's some appeal to that. Don't sacrifice your son. That's crazy talk. There's a lot of appeal to that. Number your people. You've earned it. There's an appeal to that as well. But even though temptation is appealing, we are never brought into temptation that is so great that we absolutely cannot endure it. And that's what we read as well. That's what we read as well. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. You may be able to endure it. And we see in Jesus the ultimate example of enduring temptation. As he taught us to pray, lead us not in temptation, Matthew 4, verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. We pray not to be tempted. Jesus goes according to God's design intentionally for the purpose of being tempted. And he goes into the wilderness and he's starving after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. And then the devil comes and he gives him all these very tempting temptations and Jesus, battling with the word of God against the devil, is successful over them those temptations. And then we move forward time, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is successful against the temptation to run away from his arrest. And then on the cross, as he's being tormented by the people who had put him up there unjustly, and they say, if you are the Son of God, come down from there. Wouldn't it have been tempting to come down from there and kill them all? But he doesn't. He prevails through all the strongest temptations which have ever afflicted the people of God. The author of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. Will God answer our prayer? 
Yes, of course, God will answer our prayer. But there is, again, still a certain amount of testing, which is good for us. We read this in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some temptation allows us to learn how to say no. And gives us the strength to continue to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It produces perseverance. And it allows us to have the joy of knowing that God has so changed us and so transformed us that whereas we used to be attracted to sin, no longer are we attracted to sin. But we desire always, always by God's grace what is right. God leads us into, te- into testing but only always for our good. And so we can summarize this in, in just some simple ways. When we, when we pray that God would not lead us into temptation, we are praying that he would not lead us into a place of testing. But then we also must acknowledge right away that God does not tempt us, but he allows us to be tested for our own good, that we can see what is in our own heart. And we can see that there is no testing which we, ha- which we endure that is not greater than what Jesus endured And he is our God and gives us strength to endure as well. So that's that's our prayer. But as with each of the other petitions, we recognize that there is something in this prayer that requires something of us. When we pray that first petition, Lord, hallowed Father, hallowed be your name, we are committing ourselves to living lives of reverence. And when we say your kingdom come, we commit ourselves We commit ourselves to living now as faithful citizens in that kingdom. And we pray, your will be done. We commit ourselves to doing the will of God insofar as we are able. When we pray that that God would give us this day our daily bread, we commit ourselves to that kind of faith. Where if we have to wait until that day for our daily bread, we will wait in faith. And we commit ourselves to being the means if necessary, and if God calls us to meet the needs of others who pray that same prayer. And when we pray that God would forgive us our debts, we commit ourselves to forgiving others their debts as well. So what is it that this requires of us? Lead us not to temptation. Well, very simple, very simply, what it requires of us is that we don't lead ourselves into temptation either. That as we ask that God would keep us free from testing, then we pray as well that we would not be so foolish as to bring ourselves into it. J.I. Packer says this, we watch against temptation by noting what situation, company, and influences expose us to it and avoiding them whenever we can. Perhaps we can put this in the context of a few Bible stories. If the Lord If the Lord told Adam and Eve not to eat from a certain tree, it would not have been wise for them to linger around that tree as much as possible. Or if the Lord says don't commit adultery, it probably wasn't a good idea for David to be on the top of his roof looking in the window at women who were married and were bathing. You can put yourself into situations where you you are exposed to sin. There are certain challenges that are unique to certain times, but there are are also the, also the temptation, temptation itself, is not unique to any one given time or place. 
But there are times and there are ages, and our own is no exception, when there are, there are, there are temptations which are more profound, more prevalent. And I think one of those is found right here in our age. This is a very handy gadget. I mean, of all the inventions ever made, there has got to be very few that are more convenient than this one. It's a watch, it's an alarm clock, a map with directions. It gathers more information in a couple seconds, or even in less than a second, than the wisest, most educated of people throughout the entire human history could have gathered in their entire lives. You can order food from it. You can deposit checks from it. You can buy anything you want with it. You can play your music with it. And you can take pictures with it. And to top it all off, you can even use it as a phone. It's an incredible device. But it's also incredibly dangerous. You can get involved in, in social media where the world is essentially a fake world and it can create massive life-defining, even sometimes life-ending anxiety. We can use it to lie about ourselves, present ourselves as something which we are not. We can stare at it for hours on end with no purpose, just giving away the hours that God has given us. He gives us, he gives us days and weeks, but the days go so quickly and we can waste so much time on something with so much information. And of course, we can access images and materials that would have made the worshipers of Baal and Elijah's day blush. Helpful, yes, but very dangerous as well. And if it's a constant, continuous temptation to sin, then when we pray, lead us not to temptation, we need to take it seriously and ask ourselves, am I leading myself into temptation by having such a device in my pocket all day, every day, and sleeping right next to it at night? Am I bringing myself into a situation where I cannot control myself and where I am bound to sin? And if that is the case, then it is better for us to get rid of it than to have it, convenient as it may be. Because we cannot pray this prayer in good conscience if we are leading ourselves intentionally into sin. You, you, you know, I'm sure a few of you have said, I, I think, Pastor, you mentioned this a couple months ago, maybe you should find some more material. But, you know, that's okay. Jesus preached on a lot of the same things a lot of times because people needed to hear it again and again and again and again. Now, it's incredibly dangerous to have such things. You know, it used to be that the most common reason for divorce was fighting over money. But today that has changed. Now the most common reason for divorce is infidelity, almost always now found through your phone or the Internet. We need to be ready to do away with whatever it is that leads us into temptation. So what is the situation for you, though? Some of you don't have phones. Some of you have flip phones. Good for you. What is the situation for you that leads you into temptation? Perhaps what is the crowd that you are around when you are led into temptation? Men, what is it that leads you into temptation? It's time. It's time to grow up. It's time for men in our day to stop looking for cheap thrills. It's time to start leading in integrity in the home and in the church. It's time to get in the Word and off whatever platform or whatever website we're on. It's time to get on our knees. It's time to be men. And women, where are you? Where are you when you are most prone to slandering or gossiping about your husband? 
And where are you when you find it most easy to fall into the sin of discontentment? And what are those voices in your life that lie to you with the feminist lie of our day that you don't really have all that much worth unless you are functionally a man? Forsaking your God-given, God-image-bearing femininity, which is of incredible value. What is it that leads you away? What is it that leads you away from righteousness? Whatever it is, you need to lead yourself away from it. Perhaps of all generations in the history of the church, this is where church history, knowing history, comes in handy. Of all generations in the history of the church, I don't know that there was any one of them which was more flippant towards sin than our own. We take sin more lightly and we take holiness more lightly than any of our brothers and sisters who have gone before. I wanted you to take this for an example. and I, I told you I was going to come back to this a couple weeks ago. And so here, here's an example that I think about the, 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 light, the light way we take sin and holiness. And it, our dating and engagement practices are pathetic. The way that we go about the, the way of dating and being engaged, it, it, it's foolishness. A young man and a young woman date for years, and then they're engaged for, for 16 months or 24 months or three years, and, and somehow this is applauded as being, as being righteous, as being wise. And, and when I say this is, is foolishness, I, I met with, with blank stares. But I mean, come on. This is just basic righteousness 101. This is, this is human sexuality 101. Just, just shoot straight. Why do we date? We date to find a spouse. If you're dating for any reason other than to find a spouse, you're leading yourself into temptation. You're playing with fire, and you're most likely going to get burned. And so we, we date to find a spouse. We date to find out if someone is, maybe we should say, marriage material. And then we get engaged. Why does a couple get engaged? You get engaged to be married. That's what engaged means, right? You have become engaged to be married. That's the goal. The goal is to be married. And why do we get married? We get married because marriage is the God-ordained, good, and perfectly secure relationship in which to express the sexuality that God has given us. So again, what is the point of engagement? The point of engagement is to be married. Why does it take 20 months to get married once you've decided to be married? Why does it take? I mean, I don't get it. Being engaged is a drag anyways. I've never met anybody who comes to the day of their wedding who says to me, you know, Pastor, this engagement thing is great. I really would like it to go on for another 12 months. No, what I get is people coming to me saying, I have waited for this so long. I wish I would have gotten married six months ago. And you know what I say? I told you so. <laughs> Being engaged is a drag. We, we want to get married. Marriage is a good thing. Living outside of marriage with someone that you want to marry perpetually is not a wise thing. You know, you think of previous generations, like the generation, of the World War II generation. All kinds of men got, got engaged and married in a very short amount of time to their sweetheart when they found out their unit was going to be deployed. They got married in their own homes or small weddings in their churches, and they didn't have all this all these things, but you know, those marriages were strong. My own grandparents are a good example of that. They got married with about eight people in attendance in their living room, and he got shipped out a week later. And they were married for a long time. You think as well, Bible story Isaac and Rebecca, 
Isaac and Rebecca were engaged for about a whole total of five hours maybe before they got married. They got married the day they met. Does God have a problem with that? Well, it didn't really seem like God had a problem with that. You know what God has a problem with? God has a problem with fornication. What are our, what are our priorities? Do we take sin so lightly that we're willing to put everything else above righteousness? Now, is Isaac and Rebecca an extreme example? Well, that's a conversation for a dip, uh, different day, but yeah, it, it probably is. But but at the same time, what do, you, what do you call dating for years on end? What do you call being engaged for years on end? You know what you call it? You call it leading yourself into temptation. That's what it is. If you're tempted, if you're not tempted during that time, just call it off. You don't like each other anyways. I mean, if you're looking at the calendar and you see that a year is still to come before you're married, like if it's, what is the date today, February 16? If you look at the calendar and you say, February 16 of 2021, I'll still not be married. That's crazy. Just get married. If you want to be married anyways, I, I don't understand. I mean, if you, can be, if you can be engaged for an entire calendar year and not be tempted, not fall into it, you're either the most self-controlled people who have ever graced the planet, you don't, ever, you don't really actually like each other, or you're fools who are playing with fire, most likely to get burned. And my money is on option three. You know, men, if, you're not, if, you, if you've been dating somebody for a year and you haven't decided whether you want to marry her or not, call it off until you can make up your mind. And women, if you've been dating someone for a year or whatever it is, and he hasn't been able to commit, then you should call it off. Don't, don't stick yourself with an oversized adolescent man-child who can't make up his mind and commit for the rest of your life. You know, and moms and dads, just why, why, do we, why do we encourage, why do we encourage unrighteousness? Encourage our children in holiness. You know, holiness takes precedence over every other thing in God's economy. It takes precedence over financial security or finishing school, a perfect caterer or wedding venue or dress or whatever else. Holiness takes precedence over every other thing. We take sin so lightly. We don't even think about what our decisions might mean for our hearts and for our souls. And it almost seems as if everything else takes precedence over the safety of our hearts and our souls. You know, Martin Luther had a very simple perspective on this. We acknowledge that we'll be tempted. There, there's no way around temptation. We know that we will be tempted. You could lock yourself in your room for the rest of your life and you'll still face temptation. But this is what he said. He said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. There are ways that we can invite temptations and there are ways that we can discourage temptations. And we ought not to make our life a nest for temptation. So we pray, lead us not into temptation, and then we commit ourselves, we commit ourselves to not leading ourselves into temptation, and then what do we do? Well, then we trust the Lord. Then we trust that if Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, that he will indeed lead us not into temptation. And we trust that God will keep his promise, that he will not give us temptation, that he does not give us a way out of. 
And we trust that we trust that God will, that He will actually help us in temptation, that His Spirit will be given to us to grow us up in righteousness. We trust as well that, that God isn't keeping the good stuff from us. We trust that temptation actually is temptation to sin, which is bad for us, and that being protected from it is actually good for us. And then we trust, praise God, and then we trust that the day will come when we are never tempted again. The day will come when there are no serpents in the garden. There are no trees of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, at the end, there's just one great tree in the city of God, and it's the tree of life. And we long for the day when there is no more temptation, no more smartphones, no more anything that's going to lead us astray. When our hearts are entirely made new, we don't have to pray the Lord's Prayer. Because praying, lead us not in temptation, doesn't even enter our minds because there is none. We trust that while we wait for that day, God will preserve us. But then we trust as well that that day will indeed come. Paul said, as we read earlier, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he follows, up right up, he follows it up right after that. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God delivers us from temptation. And it is through Jesus Christ that we are delivered even from our sin. In Jude, at the end of his short little spirit-inspired letter, that very next-to-last book of the Bible, which can be so daunting to read, even though it's just a, a few paragraphs, he gives this great doxology at the end which speaks to us of God's power and willingness to keep us from our sin. And I'll close with this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to be led into temptation. And sometimes we look back across our lives and we see that you have spared us. And we are very thankful for those times when it felt like we were missing out, but in truth, you were simply sparing us from ourselves. We pray that you would give us wisdom. Give us wisdom not to lead ourselves into temptation to keep holiness and righteousness at the forefront of our minds, to remember that what the Word says is true, that our God is a consuming fire. And then as well to remember what we prayed last week, forgive us our debts, that as you are a God who calls us to holiness, so you are also one who is mercy and who has grace, grace to forgive even the greatest of our sins. Lord, we pray that the testing which we face will not be too great for us, and that you will open our eyes to see the way out. Give us a willingness to do drastic things, if that is what is necessary to defeat the sin in our lives. Don't allow us just to give lip service to following you. 
We pray that our hearts would be given in service to you. That our very minds would be changed. That our priorities would begin to mirror those which are contained in your word. Lord, we ask that as your people and as those who are followers of Christ, that we might look like him, think like him, speak like him. And then one day, by your grace, live with him. In the day when there is no temptation, no sin, no death, no sorrow or sadness, and no reason to pray these words. But until then, keep them ever on our lips and in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.